<clears throat> All right, raise your hand. Um, tell me, raise your hand if you've ever read any Flannery O'Connor. Southern author, died in the 1950s at an early age of lupus. All right, those of you that have read Flannery O'Connor, anybody raise your hand if you've ever read her short story called Revelation. Oh, excellent. <clears throat> if I get it wrong, you'll never know. <clears throat> uh, Revelation uh, takes place mainly in the waiting room of a doctor's office. And uh, in <laughs> it rings a bell. Thank you. Yeah. Um, they're all in this waiting room. And as, and as waiting rooms of doctor's offices are, are tend to be, it's full of a diverse array of people from a diverse array of uh, ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds and various levels of education. They're all coming into that waiting room for one reason, because they all have an affliction, because that's why you sit in waiting rooms of doctor's offices. Um, the protagonist of the story is someone named Mrs. Turpin. Uh, we never learn her first name, only Mrs. Turpin, in, in keeping with sort of the, the air of formality and distinction that she likes to give off. Um, the deal is, though, the only distinctiveness about her is just how distinctive and egregious is her racism and her classism. She is a southern woman of the 1950s, in a, in a locale in which uh, she speaks um, disparagingly of everybody that's not like her, of everybody that she sees that may be beneath her, and uh, just utterly demeaning. And, and what's even worse is that in the midst of saying all of those disparaging, demeaning comments about people that are unlike her, she will fuse all of that with all of this high, flowery, religious language, speaking of Jesus over and over again. There in the waiting room across the seat from her is a, a young college student whose name is Mary Grace, and I think her name is rather apt. But um, she's sitting there reading a college textbook on human development. And <clears throat> with every disparaging comment that Mrs. Turpin makes, Mary Grace starts to get more and more uncomfortable in her chair. Um, she begins to grunt and grimace. Her eyes begin to flatten out, and she's almost in a, um, of just sort of screwing herself up in, in quite anger, going to be able to anger, such that at some point, about a halfway through the story, Mrs. Turpin says this, If it's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. At which point she gets clocked in the eye with Mary Grace's textbook. Mrs. Turpin falls to the ground, flailing about. The, the waiting room erupts, trying to subdue this girl. They pull out sedatives to try to subdue her. She's just seething, and Mrs. Turpin sort of raises to her feet and kind of gets her bearings and looks at this girl in the eye, and he says, what do you got to say to me? In, 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 in O'Connor's words, as if waiting for a revelation. And the girl looks back at her and whispers, Go back to hell where you came from, you warthog. <laughs> Why would Flannery O'Connor write such a story? What is she up to? Now, I mean, she never needed rationale for writing the story. Her, her stories were good. My wife will never forgive me for ever letting her read A Good Man is Hard to Find. <clears throat> Why would she write such a story? Her context gave her rationale to write a story like that. She is speaking into a context where there was rampant and unabashed racism and classism. And her story is in some ways meant to 
poke that context in the eye. To leave a mark such that that mark might yield change in time. That's why she writes a story like that. During Advent, we're going to listen to the story of Jonah. And it's my argument that the reason Jonah is recorded and included in the Bible for our sake is to poke Israel in the eye. It is to leave a mark, if you will, that it might yield a change in time. And you might be asking yourself right now, okay, it's Advent. Why in the world are we going to listen to Jonah? What does Jonah have to do with Christmas? Oh, oh, friends of mine, plenty. Because I'll say this just by way of prefacing. Both Jonah and Jesus are issued almost the exact same commission. And that is to enter into a world that is hostile. To engage that world that is in some respects unfamiliar and a lot of other respects absolutely hostile to him. And in that sense, those two stories overlap like they never could have. But what Jonah and Jesus also reflect is the struggle to enter into a world to bring mercy unto it. And so to begin our season of Advent, to begin this consideration of the prophet Jonah's story, we're going to consider what does it mean to enter into this world with mercy. Jesus has. Jonah will be asked to. And you know what? So will you. What does it mean for us to enter into the world with mercy? We're going to look at the very first chapter. If you're able to stand for the whole first chapter, I encourage you to do so. We're in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may go quiet for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And Jonah said to them, 
pick me up. Hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they couldn't, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the curious word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Most stories that we're familiar with, most films, they they give you a little bit of time to kind of get your bearings in it. They kind of slowly introduce you into the world and to the plot, not this story. Um, It thickens right then, immediately. Verse 1, the word of the Lord fell to Jonah, son of Amittai. Not just some guy, Jonah, son of Amittai. In other words, a prophet. If you want to look in the concordance of your Bibles, Jonah shows up in only one other place in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 14. He is a prophetic advisor to King Jeroboam II, who ruled over the northern kingdom of Israel. Just for those of you who are keeping up with trivia. It was Jonah's suggestion that Jeroboam needed to secure his borders. And so he did. This commission, though, here in Jonah chapter 1, a very different kind of commission. It is not for him to speak into the condition of Israel. It is for him to speak into a foreign nation, an unfamiliar nation, the nation or the great capital city of Nineveh. Uh, Just to get your geographical bearings, Nineveh is what we know present day as Mosul, northern Iraq, changed hands between Iraqi government and ISIS over the last several years. In 2014, an ancient shrine to Jonah was razed to the ground, obliterated by ISIS. And in the article that I posted on the web resources, you can actually discover that in the midst of, of destroying that shrine, an even more ancient shrine was found beneath it. 3,000 years ago, though, Nineveh is a great capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which at its height stretched all the way from what is now Egypt, all the way to now what is Iran, sprawling. They were the big kid on the block for that season. And by the 8th century BC, though, Assyria had annexed Israel also. Overrun its borders, occupied its cities, exported Israel's brain trust back to their own capital city, And if that wasn't enough, they imposed an annual tribute on Israel to say, if you want to live, you got to pony up every year just to pay the taxes so that you can survive. So you can imagine that what we're talking about here is something not unlike German-occupied Czechoslovakia circa 1934, 35. Which means that what is being asked of Jonah should make us go, I'll go, wait a minute. Did he hear that correctly? As one Jewish commentator on this passage noted, this would be like asking, 
a Jewish excellence, a Jewish rabbi to walk into Berlin in 1936 and start uttering moral exhortations. That's what Jonah is being asked to do. And, and let's be really clear about the nature of those moral exhortations. They, they are, God is not asking Jonah to go in to berate. It's not asking him to go in there and to dehumanize or to condemn. He's not telling him, go drive a chariot into a crowd and make a statement. He's not talking about mounting a military campaign upon Nineveh or the Assyrian Empire. Jonah is being asked to go in and warn them of their way. To warn them of their way in the sense of its spiritual implications. Which is just another way of saying, Jonah is being asked to go to Nineveh for Nineveh's good. To have regard for Nineveh. Why? Because apparently God had regard for Nineveh. These merciless Assyrians who were imposing tribute upon Israel, God is saying, go warn them. Go take thought of them. Can you imagine asking a black man to walk into a white supremacist rally and ask him not to go in there to excoriate them, but to plead with them? To plead with them to cease from their ways. To plead with them to cease from their ways, not because of it's just because of it's an evil, because of what will happen to them if they continue in that. That's what Jonah's being asked to do. That's his commission. And the implication from that is as clear as a bell. That when it comes to God's mercy, there is a wideness to it that you and I might prefer to ignore. There is a wide scope of his intention to show mercy to the world. And Jonah is being commissioned to enter into the full scope of that mercy by going to the people that he would last expect God would have any regard for. That's his commission. And the reason this story is told is because Israel had forgotten their commission. That to be the people of God was to have that commission. That's why you and I are listening to it today again. That's our commission. To move toward those who are merciless in order to bring the mercy of God. To those who might consider God to be an unwelcome presence and to bring to them the welcome of God. That's God's intentions for mercy. That's the scope of that intention into which you and I are uh, being invited to enter into. Now, I say that, and there may be some of you in this room of a particular ideological persuasion that are saying to yourself, see, see, you traditionalists, inclusion. You ought to try it sometime. And then there are others of another ideological persuasion in this room that might say, oh, were you listening? Did you hear them say, warning against wickedness? That's a category. Neither of those two ideological persuasions map onto what Jonah is being asked to do here. Not precisely. Jonah is being asked to be unswerving in his regard for the dignity, the worth, the value of those unto whom he's being sent. But he's also being called to a commitment to what is the category of righteousness. That's what it means to enter into the full scope of God's mercy. 
And this is not unique to Jonah. Um, if you've been with us during our series on the Psalms, you heard us harp on Psalm 67 over and over again. Let the nations be glad in God. That God's intentions would be that every nation would take their joy and their praise to him. If you were to go 20 Psalms later to Psalm 87, that psalmist rattles off all the enemies of God. Egypt, Philistia, Babylon, Cush, Tyre. Who are all they? They're the ones that tried to overrun and annihilate Israel. But in that psalm, it speaks to all of them as that one and this one being born in Zion. That they all share a common communion in God. If you were listening to the Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 29, what did he tell Israel when they got exiled to Babylon? Seek the welfare of the city unto which I have sent you in exile, for in their welfare you'll find your own. Babylon did to the southern kingdom what Assyria did to the northern kingdom of Israel. It's the same message to Jonah. Seek their welfare. I have an interest in their welfare. When it comes to Advent, when it comes to Jonah, it's the same commission to enter into the full scope of God's mercy by putting no limits onto whom it applies. Which sounds wonderful and sounds all cheery. But look, here's the deal. Jonah heard that call and then he hung up the phone and then he threw his phone in the ocean. Yeah, enter into the full scope of it, not, not for me. That's sort of somebody else's gig, Jonah is saying. He, he flees, finds a boat that is going in the absolute other direction. Did you notice that it mentioned Tarshish like three times? God says, go to Nineveh. No, 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 I'm, I'm going south. You want me to go north, I, I am going south. And, and if you also might have noticed twice, it says he tried to flee the presence of the Lord not just the command of God, but, but the internal stare of God upon his heart. I don't want that. I'm not doing that. Not just no, but insert expletive no. <clears throat> Didn't expect that laugh. That's what he's doing. What, but, but why? What, what's, what's up with Jonah? Why, why is he fleeing? Um, I, I think we could all intuit pretty reasonably it, part of its fear. Uh, uh, you remember the line from um, Boromir at the Council of Elrond and the Fellowship of the Ring? One does not simply walk into Mordor, right? One does not simply walk into Nineveh and think that they're going to throw you a party. If you get past the border and you're not already beheaded, it's a good day. Fear, in some ways, motivates his reason to flee. But I'd like to argue that it is not primarily the fact that he's afraid. It's because just like Mrs. Turpin, he thinks of the Nineveh, the Ninevites as others with a capital O. More than just unfamiliar, more than just different, but so threatening as to be unworthy of a second thought. Jonah flees in part because of fear, but I think partly, if not more so inwardly as an act of disparagement towards those people that God has called him to see and enter into the full scope of mercy for. And I say that to you, if only to ask you the rhetorical question, were you given a similar commission in your daily life to go unto people that you might despise 
would you respond any differently? Are there people to whom you might have an opportunity to speak of the mercy and welcome of God that either you would either despise telling them or that you'd be more afraid to say anything because you were afraid of how they thought of you? Jonah's story is in many ways just like ours. Jonah's inclination is in many ways just like ours. We don't want to go there. And so we will hang up the phone. Alan Jacobs, he's a a professor of literature down at Baylor University in Texas. And he just wrote a book called How to Think. And he kind of diagnoses our world as a people who like to say that they think, but usually come up with all sorts of strategies for choosing not to think. And he mentions another author who references a sort of a cultural phenomenon called the RCO, the Repugnant Cultural Other. And it was her argument that everybody's kind of got one. And if you're not sure of it, just turn on Twitter or Facebook. That seems like there is somebody that everybody despises. And everybody's got their own version. And that when it, uh, the, the repugnant cultural other is, is someone who, whose views you find so different from your own or so distasteful to your own, and the emotions that they stir up in you almost make you think that you have license to stop thinking about their views or even stop thinking about being charitable to them and certainly stop thinking about ever being merciful to them. And so Alan Jacobs, early in the introduction of his book, says this about how we, what happens when we think of others as the repugnant cultural other. He says, if I'm consumed by this belief that that person over there is both other and repugnant, I may never discover that my favorite television program is also his favorite television program. That we like some of the same books, though not for precisely the same reasons. That we both know what it's like to nurse a loved one through a long illness. All of which is to say that I may all too easily forget that political and social and religious differences are not the whole of human experience. When you stop thinking about people as you ought to, when you are threatened by their thoughts, by their ways, your first inclination will be to fight back or to run. It will be to stop thinking. It will be to stop respecting. It will be to stop loving. It will be to stop thinking that you should ever have cause to be merciful to them. You might wonder why we picked such a menacing picture of a fish for this series. And you might also think, all think it's because when he gets to chapter 2, he goes into the belly of a great fish. Yeah, it's part of it, but no, it's much more. That's how Jonah thinks of the Ninevites. Threatening. Menacing. And in some ways, they'd earned a reputation. But he used their reputation as a pretext for retaining that version of them. You and I do the same thing. People we despise, people that we fear, we choose to think of them in that way. And therefore we refuse to enter into their world to bring the mercy or the welcome of God unto them because we think, I'm not doing that. They're scum. Not going there. Oh, oh, the fish is pregnant with meaning. And the whole series will speak to that question about why we picked that image. 
Jonah sees them this way and says, no. It's not for me. How does God respond? God could have said, okay, have it your way. Don't let the cabin door hit you where my divine hand splits you. I'll find somebody else to go talk to Nineveh. But verse 4 says this, but God. Jonah flees, verse 4, but God. Jonah, you may not have any buy-in into my will or to my work. You may have no interest in my plan for you, but I will not give up on you. You don't want to sign up for letting my mercy work through you? Fine. Then I'm going to show you my mercy to you. Church, this is your God. He will not take that kind of no for an answer. Because he's for Nineveh and he's also for Jonah. And their stories are bound up together. And so God not only tells Jonah about how his mercy is to work through him, now he's going to show Jonah how God's mercy is to work to him. And, and how does that mercy show? How does it go forward? For one, God intervenes with the storm to, if you will, create a context. A context for Jonah to reconsider his assumptions. Jonah thinks, I know, I'll buy a ticket on a boat far away in the opposite direction. And he thinks that's his way to escape. But actually what he's done is stepped himself into a trap. Ha ha. He's caught. The storm billows up. And he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? There in that context, there in that calamity, Jonah is going to be forced to reconsider his assumptions. And isn't that just like life? Isn't it true that most of the time in when you've had a sea change in the way you've thought, it's been in the context of your own personal calamity? That's a mercy to you. And it's a mercy to Jonah. Because he is brought into a moment where he will have to face what he refuses to face. That's mercy. You know how else God has shown him mercy? God puts Jonah in a position to realize that his and these other pagan dudes, that their destinies are bound up together. They're on a boat. The storm kicks up. And what does Jonah do? He goes below. Because you ever go into a sleep because you want to escape what you really don't want to face? Yeah, I have two. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I'll just go sleep this off, even though I know I'm going to have to wake up again. Jonah goes below, and what happens? Officer of the ship comes down and says, Arise! Which, the storyteller of Jonah's story is brilliant, because that word, arise... It's the same word that God uses with Jonah in verse 1. Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. It's almost like God is trying to haunt him with the voice of God in the voice of a pagan crewman. Get up! Call on your God! Pony up for whatever divine assistance you might have access to. We are all in this together! 
See, Jonah at this point is kind of operating under the premise of it's every man for himself. I'll do my own thing. And God is saying, you can't. Your destiny is bound up with theirs. John Donne, no man is an island. You know what he says in that? Any man's death diminishes me for I am involved in mankind and therefore do not send for those to ask for whom the bell tolls. The bell tolls for thee. We're all in this together. That solidarity that we share with those who are different from us, who share a different view from us, it is a mercy to be awakened to the fact that we are all in this together. Even if we think they are other with a capital O. But the crowning demonstration of God's mercy to Jonah is to illumine him to one other idea. That crowning blow in what he learns is about the nature of these pagan dudes that are on the boat. The fact that they are just like him, but also that they are demonstrating a better version of himself than even he is of himself. Now, I know that's kind of cryptic. Let me unpack it for just a moment. They're just like him. Call on your God. We're going to drown. Everybody's got a God. Everybody's got a theory of everything whether they admit it or not, or whether they've ever thought about it or not. Everybody's got a a theory of cause and effect. People like to talk about grace. People like to talk about karma because they all have a theory of what's really going on and and what is to account for everything, or that the world is completely random and we just sort of take what we get. Everybody's got a theory of everything. Everybody's got a theory of where their meaning is going to come from, what's going to keep them safe. Jonah is learning in that moment that they're just... Like him. Um, a couple weeks ago, we had a, we had a painting or a, a big photograph framed fall on our piano. Just busted it up. And uh, this repairman comes over to fix the piano. Um, and uh, if you need a, a good um, piano repairman, I'll give you a name. But not right now. Um, so <clears throat> I, I'm there for lunch. My wife is there talking to him. And, um, and she says to him, hey, you should come to church with us sometime. And he says, I- I'm not really a churchgoer. And um, some of you are thinking right now, oh, my poor sweet wife, she doesn't realize that she's in Asheville. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that, um, you know, that people around here are not really that kind of thing. And no, that's not really the case. My, my wife is fully cognizant of the, where she has come to. She just really doesn't much care about how people think about her, <laughs> which, is, which is just lovely sometimes. I could learn from it. Um, <clears throat> but when he says, I'm not really much of a churchgoer, and then she looks at me and she goes, yours. And then she has to go off on an errand. Right? Um, And so I just said, okay, um, which do you have a bigger problem with, Jesus or the church? And he says, how about both? And and he talks about being in a youth group and and how uh, in his his youth, uh, one of his youth leaders once asked him, do you think Jesus could ever be elected president in this country? And and he, the smart aleck as he is, raised his hand and said, "Um, sir, Jesus wasn't born here. So... Another birther, right? Um, <clears throat> so I just, I just, you know, where, where do you come from? Where, 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 what country do you come from? Where, where, what's your outlook, right? And he goes, look, um, I don't want to offend you. I said, dude, you have to go a long way before you're ever going to offend me. Trust me. I, I, uh, you, there's nothing, nothing I hear anymore can shock me, mostly. He says, look, I did that for a while. But now I kind of realized or have come to the conclusion that religion is just sort of a way for people to find meaning. And they did it really well for a long time. And I don't need 
God to find my meaning, and I really don't need a version of God to um, know why I shouldn't act like a doofus to others. And he didn't use the word doofus, but it's a family show. Um, and I said, you're absolutely right. You, you don't need God to tell you why you shouldn't be a doofus to somebody else. But I said, but what about if you see somebody else being a doofus to somebody else? What will you tell them? Why should they not be a doofus? I mean, you say you don't need meaning and you don't need some sort of transcendent category to, to ground why you would not be a doofus to somebody, but, but what, what, what would you tell somebody else? And, and just in that moment, he goes, hmm. Like, we connected. It wasn't threatening. He didn't get down on his knees right there and say, Jesus is Lord. Uh, you, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. If I'm really following Jonah's story here, then I should start warning him about everything. Well, you know, We'll talk about it more. Jonah had several categories that he shared with the Ninevites that that would make the conversation be a little bit more efficient and expedient. But I'm just going to know this guy, and I think bringing the full scope of God's mercy unto him and the way you bring the full scope of God's mercy unto somebody is maybe mostly by asking them questions. Like, where do you find your meaning? And why is it that you want to act with integrity and not be a doofus to somebody else? He's just like me. He's just like you. And Jonah is having to learn that in this moment. But he's also having to learn that there may be people that have no knowledge of God that sure act a lot more like people who have a knowledge of God than he did. Because you know what happens in the story, right? They say, what are we going to do? How are we going to end this, this storm? And Jonah says, um, okay, I'll admit it. I'm a, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. Which, when the guys on the ship hear that, they go like, ah! But you know what the first people that ever heard this story would have said? Well, isn't that ironic? Jonah says, I worship the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He hadn't shown a flippin' thing about worship of the, of the living God in the way he's acted so far. And so when he tells them, throw me overboard. It's the first godly thing he's ever done. Because his problem is he's so self-absorbed. Anybody got that problem? And what do the crewmen do? They don't say, okay, boys, off with him. They row harder. They respect his life. They don't want to besmirch who he is. They don't want to be responsible for his death. And so they row harder to preserve them, but also to preserve him. In other words, they're demonstrating more respect for this one guy they've never met than Jonah has demonstrated any respect for Nineveh over these guys on the boat. And therefore, what they're demonstrating is a deeper godliness than what Jonah has. What they're showing is a demonstration of the better version of Jonah himself than even Jonah is himself. That's a mercy. There's all sorts of people in this world, folks, that are going to hold up a mirror to you and go, you know what, that looks a lot more like Jesus than even what I know of Jesus. And you should not be surprised by that. That's a mercy. That's what God is up to. That's why he's doing it. Jonah is being illumined. Participation in the full scope of God's mercy through you for some reason depends on a grasp of God's mercy to you. Let me say that again. Being inspired to see God's mercy work through you depends in part, 
if not in large part, on taking a grasp of God's mercy to you. The question is, why? That's my last point, why? You've talked about the scope. We've talked about the depth. One other thing. Those guys are rowing, and it's not working. And they're crying out, but they're not crying out to their gods. They're crying out to Jonah's God. Something shifted in them. And they say to him, please, if it is true that the only way for you to quell this storm is for us to send him overboard, then would you please not hold his innocent blood against us? They have adopted Jonah's divine worldview in about 30 minutes. Congratulations. They are deferring to Yahweh. They get it. They respond to it. And they throw him overboard. And what happens? The storm ceases. Back in verse 10, when Jonah tells them that he's a Hebrew, they're panicked. They're feared. They're fearful. But in the last verse of this text, it's the same word for fear. But now that fear is turned into worship. They're offering sacrifices to God. They're making promises to him. They have come to see God's mercy to them, which communicates one thing, that in mercy, there is power. The reason we need to see God's mercy to us, that it, God's mercy might work through us, is because there is mercy that is powerful in us. And this is sort of a, um, a, 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 a humorous example, but I have a, a pin pal acquaintance in California who is a brilliant scientist and equally kind and an unabashed atheist. And we've had wonderful conversations by email for a long time. But he wrote a book last year on human behavior, uh, of which has the introduction in that book uh, as, uh, um, about a story with his wife when they're in their minivan together with their kids in the back seat. His wife is driving, he's in the passenger seat, and they're just driving along, minding their own business, and this car just sort of cuts them off, nearly sends them into the ditch. And it wasn't just sort of he was on his cell phone and was not looking, it was that he was just angry and just sort of cut him off in total selfishness. She fumes. She lays on the horn and she says, I'm going to follow him. And he's like, are you sure this is a good idea? I'm going to follow him, right? So she follows him, starts to tailgate him, just... Just livid. I cannot believe he did that. They pull up to a red light where it's going to be a long light and he's trapped in front of another car. And she says, I'm going to do something about this. And she grabs something from the console, storms out of the door, walks up to that guy. And by now, this guy, her husband's like, oh, this is not going to go well. She raps on his window. He rolls it down. She throws something into the car and says a few venomous words and then gets back in her car. And her husband says, what did you just throw in there? She's silent. Light turns green. Guy in the car that had cut her off and been really nasty turns on his signal, makes a perfect and slow left turn, and drives at about 15 miles an hour. Something had changed. Husband looks at his wife and says, what did you throw in there? She says, a grape lollipop. (laughs) What? A grape lollipop. And I said, what did you say to him? I said, if you would be willing to do something so mean, then something must have happened in your childhood that maybe this will help a little bit. (laughs) You know what she's doing? She's being prophetic. 
if Jonah had been full Jonah, she had just done full Jonah there. A fierce defense of what was right and proper, coupled to an abiding commitment to the worth and the value of the one to whom she had an angry issue with. It's prophetic. And what she and her husband know about human behavior drive, drove that kind of response. Here's my point in bringing that up. She's got a reason for being merciful. You and I have a better one, a grander one. Because we know of one who entered into a hostile place and was called upon to go to a people that would be hostile to him, a people who would not receive him. And he didn't chafe. He didn't kick, fight, or flee. He went unto the repugnant cultural others of his day, the lepers, the adulterers, the tax collectors, the sinners, and the self-righteous. And he didn't use their behavior as an excuse not to bring them into the welcome and mercy of God. And this one, this one, like Jonah said, I'll go, take me. And his blood really was innocent. And because his innocent blood was spilled, that ended the storm of what is between the heart of God and the heart of man. And therefore, this is the deal, folks. Jonah is the perfect embodiment of yours and my predicament, but Jesus is almost the perfect foil, the perfect contrast for who Jonah is. Jesus brings mercy where mercy wouldn't be received. Jesus offers himself in sacrifice to bring the welcome of God. And here's the deal then, folks. There's only two reasons why you might not be interested in bringing the welcome of God to people that find it unwelcome. There's only two reasons why you and I might not want to bring the mercy of God to unmerciless people, and it's because of either pride or fear. Pride because you don't think they're worthy of it, or fear because you're more worried about you than them. And in Jesus and his gospel, he frees us from both. Because if we're really that bad that he had to come here into hostile territory to bring reconciliation between us and God, then we have no place to ever be a racist, a classist, or a spiritual um, superior. There's just no category for it. And if Jesus came to ensure that we would become children of God, then it really doesn't ever matter if they think you're a loon for telling them about this story. At the end of Revelation, Mrs. Turpin has a vision She's still kicking and screaming about what's been shown her about that whole comment about being a warthog from hell. But she looks on the horizon and her eyes kind of lose its stare and then she sees this vision of a, of a purple road kind of leading up into heaven and she sees this wide throng of a procession walking up to heaven on this purple ribbon and she looks a little closer and she notices that most of the people on that highway to heaven don't look a thing like her. And bringing up the rear are a bunch of fine, respectable people that sing on key, but who, in the words of Flannery O'Connor, are even having their virtues burned away. And as she walks back home on a darkening path, it says she hears the sound of crickets, but she hears more so the sound of voices singing hallelujah. This is the gospel, my friends. This is the one that helps us to see one another in the same light. That you and I, and they, might all sing hallelujah. Let's pray. Who is it that we're afraid of, Father? Who is it that we despise? Would you, by your grace, 
and your power. Show us the mercy that you've shown to us, that we might be willing to be a conduit of mercy through us. Help us to see the concreteness of that truth, sir. In Jesus' name, amen.